So normally, when we're doing a teaching series, we have like a really good reason for doing it. Well, every so often, just to ring the changes, we don't. <laughs> and this is one of those. We're doing Esther because it seemed like a good idea at the time. And when we announced it last Sunday, you all seemed really enthusiastic. So that was quite nice. Esther is an interesting one, an interesting story, a bit of an anomaly in the Bible because it doesn't mention God anywhere. It doesn't mention God. How strange is that, that a book should get into the Bible that never mentions God? There was one commentator I read who tried really hard to show that the Hebrew form of Yahweh could be seen in odd sentences with the first, word, first letter of each of the first four words. But they seemed utterly random sentences, like the king at his dinner, and you saw the word Yahweh in there, and I was like, I'm not completely convinced by this, but you know, it probably was a PhD for someone. Yet throughout the book, we see the hand of God at work. We see the growing faith of some of his people in the midst of antagonism and persecution. This book is about God's people and the very stark issue of survival versus annihilation. Is it possible for a community of faith to exist in an indifferent or hostile world? Can a community of faith prevail on the simple grounds that they are God's people? Is it possible to be a celebrating community of faith in the environment of the world's hostility? These are really important questions, none of which I'm going to look at this morning. You can do that next week. But they are really important questions, and the book of Esther gives a loud, affirmative, yes, it is. We have parallels today, ever increasingly in our own nation, actually, as it becomes harder to be the living church of Christ, and things become ever increasingly stacked against us, and will more so. But of course, globally, when we look at church communities around the world, and we see that they can scarcely even meet because of the level of hostility against them, today is epiphany. And the Orthodox Church celebrates Christmas. And yet even last night, a policeman was killed outside a church in Egypt, diffusing a bomb. The policeman was actually a Muslim. He was doing his job. But this bomb had been placed by the church there in Egypt, and he was killed, diffusing it on the path of the church. This is the reality of the world in which we live, and this story speaks very powerfully into that situation. So where are we? Of course, we're in Skipton. We are in Caesar. It's roughly in the middle of the grey bit, just above the word Babylonia there. Caesar, part of the Persian Empire. This book covers a 10-year period from 483 to 473 BC. Of course, you knew that, didn't you? During the reign of Xerxes, he ruled from 486 to 465 BC. His Hebrew name is Ahasuerus or something. I mean, I prefer the Persian in this particular instance. These Jews that we're talking about here are the descendants of those who'd been taken into exile. So they weren't the ones who'd been taken into exile. They were their descendants. They were those who, when they had the opportunity to go back 
to Judah decided that they didn't want to go, that they would stay where they already were. Their life was working out well. They just wanted to stay where they were and form a community in that area. So those are the Jews that we're speaking about in the book of Esther. They were a relatively small minority of a different race and different religion than the people around them. Xerxes ruled from his royal throne in the fortress of Susa. The main city had a circumference of approximately six to seven miles. Now, I don't know how many of you have walked around the walls of York, but there's no way it's six to seven miles. It's probably about a mile and a half or something like that. Six to seven miles. It was, it was huge. It was on an elevated site, enclosed by this massive wall, and it was crowned by the royal palace. At the beginning of his reign, the king had put down rebellions in Egypt and Babylon. His father, Darius I, rebuilt and lived there before Persepolis became the capital. And I want to show you a few images of that place because it's better uh, maintained and we can see the photos of that. It just gives us an idea of the scale and size of Susa. Susa was the former capital of ancient Elam, modern-day Iran. So you see its grandeur and its power and its beauty and its might. It was intimidating and imposing, and that's how King Xerxes liked it. It says in that first part of Esther that he ruled over 127 provinces from India to Egypt. I mean, it's huge. The Persian Empire is huge. And in the third year of his reign, he decides to give a banquet for all his nobles and officials. And this corresponds in time with a great war council of 483, which was to plan the next invasion of Greece. So, he gives this huge banquet. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the members of the royal family, the nobles of the provinces, everywhere from modern Pakistan to Turkey, come to the banquet. His great banquet lasts for 180 days. Anyone want to plan that? 180 days. In fact, it's likely that it actually occurred in shifts, mainly because some of the people attending didn't get on very well together and it wouldn't have been great to have them in the same room with a lot of wine flowing. But 180 days to display the wealth of his kingdom. This was entirely about saying, look at me, look at my palace, look at my city, look at my wealth. Look at my wall hangings and the silver rings and the columns of marble. Look at the pavements. Even the pavements are made of marble and that other word which I can't pronounce. And mother of pearl. Look at me. Look at my kingdom. Be impressed. Be afraid. But be impressed. And then I think that probably King Xerxes was really quite wise because after... Six months of people with all of their entourage trailing in from every nation of the empire through the city. Potentially the locals were getting a little bit irritated. You know what it's like on market day in the summer? 
kind of that, but times a really long time, and a really lot of people, and camels, and donkeys, and the whole deal. So he said, I'm going to have another banquet for the local residents. It's going to be a week, but you can eat and drink as much as you want in that week. And everyone from the very least to the very greatest who were in the royal fortress were invited to the banquet. And yet again, the power and glory of the king is on display, his might and authority. The world belonged to him. And at the same time, the queen gave a banquet. Now, at that time, it was kind of normal to have separate banquets for the men and the women. I mean, who knows? That might be a really great idea. But she had a banquet and invited all of the women to come to the banquet. At the end of the king's banquet, he commanded his servants to bring him the queen so that she could display her beauty. She said no. Possibly not the wisest decision. I think personally I have a great deal of sympathy for the decision that she made. But she said no. And saying no to King Xerxes meant that you lost your job. In fact, frankly, she was quite fortunate not to lose her life. She said no to his invitation. Let me ask you a question. I wonder what is the most prized invitation that you have ever had? Samuel Stowe, you are here. I was wondering if you'd snuck out. Samuel Stowe got invited to Buckingham Palace. I think that's pretty impressive because he had to take Ruth with him. And they look very, very smart. I know because I met them at King's Cross Station that day. Anyone else gone to been invited to Buckingham Palace? Well done. Oh, and you, Jonas. Oh, and Jean. Sandringham. Actually, Sandringham's lovely. We just went in the grounds, though. We didn't get invited in. Well, a few years ago, I received an invitation to an event that was at Lambeth Palace, the residence of the Archbishop of Canterbury. He wasn't even going to be there, but I was going, because it's really exciting to have an invitation to somewhere really special. There is great power in invitation. These royals and nobles traveled miles and miles and miles to respond to the invitation of King Xerxes, which probably looked a little bit like that with his royal seals on it. They came with everything they possessed. It was a little bit like when Queen Elizabeth I used to go and stay at people's houses. I mean, she literally took everything, everyone and everything, and turned up for six months. They took the risks of traveling across deserts and remote places and the danger to respond to his invitation. The locals all went because the king had invited them. Queen Vashti gathered all the women because she, the queen, had invited them. Invitations are powerful. When you don't receive one, especially if you think that maybe perhaps you ought to have done, you can feel really disappointed, can't you? You can actually even feel more than that. You can feel resentment and, and bitterness. You can even feel angry. It can be something that defines you. Why was I not invited? And the negative feelings that you feel tell you how important an invitation is. But equally, when you do receive an invitation, 
Even more so if it's unexpected. You feel joy and hope and excitement, but a deeper level, affirmation and value and privilege. Jesus often uses the stories of banquets and feasts. He talks about extravagant hosts inviting people to his party as an expression of the kingdom of God. Some people reject the invitations. They're too busy. They're preoccupied. They're doing other things. They think that they're too important. They don't recognize the opportunity that's available to them. You know, we have that privileged invitation to be in the presence of the King of Kings. When we hear that invitation, how do we respond? How many of us are too busy? Okay, some of you own up, all right, so I might feel slightly depressed otherwise. Just too busy. Well, I know I should spend time with God because that's kind of what we're talking about, isn't it? But I'm just too busy. Some of us are too preoccupied with all the other stuff that we have going on in our heads and in our lives. Maybe we're too busy having our own banquet, satisfying ourselves at our own tables to make time to eat and drink at the table of the King of Kings. And yet he invites us. You know, this is an open invite. You can receive it, you can leave it rolled up, you can open it and leave it on a table somewhere, but it doesn't run out. It is an open invite to be in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. When we are reduced to a few small crumbs of kindness, we can go to his table and he lavishes his love upon us. When we feel apathetic and a sense of compassion fatigue and it's all run out at our banquet, he says, come to my table because it's flowing with mercy when our store of hope is done, it's gone, he says, come and sit at my table because he is the hope, the anchor of our soul. When our peace is shot through with anxiety and stress, he says, I invite you. Come and spend some time with me, the Prince of Peace. Do you see? We have this invitation to be in his presence, to spend time with him, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. It is an open invitation. And at the very start of this year, he is saying, I invite you. You know, I sometimes think it's like this. I invite him. When I have time, when I'm not too busy, when there's space in my diary... Jesus, I invite you. But actually, all the while, the banquet table is open and he is saying, I invite you and you and you. I invite you. Come to my table. Come and join me. So then we get to chapter 2. And it says later. Now, I think I have for all, always thought that later meant, you know, a few hours when he'd calmed down. Later was three to four years Three to four years pass between chapter one and chapter two. And things aren't going so well for King Xerxes. 
You know that uh, political council they had to decide to deal with Greece? Well, that didn't go so well, and they had a failed military mission against Greece. It never did become part of the Persian Empire. And when he gets back, he realizes that his intoxicated decision, fueled by the enthusiasm of a few of his mates at the feast, to get rid of Queen Vashti in case she starts a feminist movement and all wives stop obeying their husbands, maybe wasn't the best idea that he's ever had because he misses her. You can say, oh, like he is a human. He misses her. So the king's servant suggests something between a Miss Persia and speed dating contest. (laughs) And the winner becomes the queen. Hooray. So they gather all of the beautiful girls of the realm. I mean, how many people was that? And they bring them to the citadel and they put them under the care of a eunuch called Hegai. His sole responsibility is to prepare the girls to meet the king. Now, I don't know what it was like when you were a teenager. I won't be sexist, but I'm probably talking more to the girls, although in our family that's not necessarily the case. Maybe you spent hours and hours and hours getting ready. Maybe, you know, you kind of wash and showered and your makeup and your hair and choosing which clothes to wear and making sure that every clothes in your wardrobe was on the floor before you decided which one you were eventually going to wear and ringing all your friends to work out what they were going to wear. Helen and I still do this before the staff Christmas dinner. <laughs> before you decided what you were going to wear. I mean, how long is the longest that you've ever taken to get ready? Because frankly, now it takes roughly around 10 minutes if you're lucky, doesn't it? Maybe the closest that you've ever got to Esther's experience was if you have been married on your wedding day. It is like a continual spa day. The best ever top-class continual spa day. Esther entered the harem. She's given beauty treatments, special food. She's assigned seven maids. And then she has 12 months of treatment, six months of oil of myrrh, and six months of perfumes and cosmetics. Frankly, anyone could look amazing after that. (laughs) You know, every pore of her body, every pore of her body would have breathed the fragrance of the perfumes that she had used. And all of that was for one evening with the king. Twelve whole months of nothing but purification, preparation for that one evening with the king. And she didn't even know that he wouldn't just say, go away. All that. You know, in the light of Esther's preparation, my preparation to meet the king of kings sometimes feels like a cursory spray of deodorant after a workout. I know that's not a pleasant image, but it is the truth, isn't it? That sometimes our lives leave an unpleasant odour that we try to cover up with our Sunday smiles and a quick prayer. And the fact that we rest upon the grace of God. Esther's preparation was her whole life. Her whole life 
was in preparation for meeting the king. You know, the Jews prepared to enter the temple for worship, for their encounter with God in two different ways. First of all, there was external purification. They washed themselves with water, as many people still do in different religions around the world, to wash themselves as a symbol of purification. But there was also the internal purification, the sacrifice of animals to deal with sin. And so animals and pigeons were sold outside the temple so that someone could offer a sacrifice before they went. But it wasn't enough. You know, the women and the Gentiles could only ever go to the outer courts. The men managed to get into the next one. But even they couldn't get to the inner courts and only the high priest with a great deal of ritual and ceremony was permitted to go to the Holy of Holies. It pointed towards a greater reality, didn't it? A greater sacrifice, a sin bearer who would take away all our mess, all our rubbish, all our uncleanness, a righteous one. Jesus who would clothe us in the robe of righteousness so that we could stand in the presence of the King of Kings unashamed. Our life needs to be that preparation, that aim towards holiness and purity, focused on pleasing the King. And we are responsible for one another in this because we together are the bride of Christ. And so we together need to be pure and holy and prepared to meet the King of Kings. We are sanctified, we are made holy by Jesus, but we are being made holy too. That bit's our responsibility in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. We are blameless because of what Jesus has done for us, but we are also being changed. We are washed clean, we are ready to meet with the King. And this whole process This whole year-long process gives Esther the privilege of access to the king, King Xerxes, ruler of the Persian Empire. And yet there's still so much uncertainty. Will he receive her? Will he welcome her? Will he love her? See, we are ready. We are prepared to meet the King of Kings, the ruler and lord of every kingdom throughout history. We are made pure because of Jesus. And so we come to his throne of grace with confidence. Now, I don't know how you feel when you walk in that door. It's not actually about walking in the door, you understand, but it's kind of a feeling, isn't it, when we come to worship? I don't know whether you feel confident. I don't know whether you feel unashamed. I don't know whether you know that you have the privilege of access to the encountering of God in the Holy of Holies, that that real closeness. Or whether you wonder and thinking, will he like me today? Will he welcome me? Will he receive me? Will he turn away from me because of who I am, because of my life? Will he want me? Am I really invited? And and you look around at all these other lovely people around who are, of course, all perfect. (laughs) 
Take a quick look around you at all the perfect people. Because they're all wondering exactly the same thing as you are. But the truth is that the King of Kings invites you. And he has made it possible for you to come into his presence. And he welcomes you because he loves you. By the way, that doesn't just apply to the person next to you. When I use the word you, I mean you. It's quite simple, really. You know, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, it says this, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We can come with confidence. I don't know what being in his presence feels like to you, is like for you. Maybe it's something like this. The kind of comfort, safe presence of sharing time with someone, of sharing things that we're like together, of feeling secure, feeling loved and just accepted it, just like this sculpture here. It's just being with him, talking to him, sharing time together with him. Maybe it's more like that. You know, you haven't seen him. You just haven't spent time in his presence in the way that you might have done. And, and actually you come in and you just, as you see his face turn towards you and his grace and his mercy and you, you just run. You just throw your arms around him. You say, I'm back. I don't know why I wasn't here. There wasn't really a reason, but, I, but I'm here now. And there's just a joy and exuberance and pleasure of being able to be in his presence. We've often shown pictures of Charlie Mackesy's prodigal son pictures, but he also did a sculpture as well of that image that he painted where you've spent a long time away and you wonder what your father is going to say to you because, well, how bad am I? No one would ever want me like this. And then the son comes back and his father runs and he embraces him. And there is that intimacy of access into the presence of God. You are not turned away. You are not not wanted. You are embraced and held. (laughs) Earlier this week when I started thinking about this, I called back to mind um, a whole passage in a book. never read the book, only the first page or two. And uh, and I want to use that. In fact, Phil, it might be good if you guys come up because I'm going to read it off the screen. But it's kind of like a prayer. It's kind of an invitation. And and I'm going to read it and I'm going to give a little bit of space in it. And if you don't need to, you know, you can maybe close your eyes or you can maybe read it, whatever works for you. But it's an invitation for us. Now, I wonder how many of us make that New Year's resolution, which is that I will spend more time with God. I frankly make that resolution every single year, in case you're wondering. You know, to to take the time to respond to his invitation, to his open banquet to you 
to be more with him, to speak more to him, to listen more to him, just to, to be in his presence. And this is written by Richard Foster, who wrote the very famous celebration of discipline. And this is his book on prayer. I say, I don't think I've ever got past about page five. I'm sure the rest of it's excellent, but I, I just love the beginning so much, I just never get past the beginning. So let's use this as a bit of an invitation for us in our worship just now, but also in our, in our year. And you know what? If you do well tomorrow and rubbish on Tuesday, don't give up. Just, just go back on Wednesday <laughs> or, or Thursday. But just respond to that invitation to spend more time with him. Today, God's heart is an open wound of love. He aches over our distance and our preoccupation. He mourns that we do not draw near to him. He grieves that we have forgotten him. He weeps over our obsession with our muchness and manyness. He longs for our presence. And he is inviting you and me to come home. To come home to where we belong. To come home to that for which we were created. His arms are stretched out wide to receive us. His heart is enlarged to take us in. For too long we have been in a far country, a country of noise and hurry and crowds, a country of climb and push and shove, a country of frustration and fear and intimidation. And he welcomes us home, home to serenity and peace and joy, home to friendship and fellowship and openness, home to intimacy and acceptance and affirmation. We do not need to be shy. He invites us into the living room of his heart where we can put on old slippers and share freely. He invites us into the kitchen of his friendship where chatter and batter mix in good fun. He invites us into the dining room of his strength where we can feast to our heart's delight. He invites us into the study of his wisdom where we can learn and grow and stretch and ask all the questions we want. He invites us into the workshop of his creativity where we can be co-laborers with him, working together to determine the outcomes of events. He invites us into the bedroom of his rest where new peace is found and where we can be naked and vulnerable and free. It is also the place of deepest intimacy where we know and are known to the fullest. The key to this home this heart of God is prayer. Perhaps you have never prayed before except in anguish and terror. Perhaps you do not believe in prayer. You may have tried to pray and been profoundly disappointed and disillusioned. You seem to have little faith or none. Perhaps you are bruised and broken by the pressures of life. Perhaps you have prayed for many years but the words have grown brittle and cold. Perhaps prayer is the delight of your life but you long for more. For all of us, the Father's heart is open wide. You are welcome to come in. If the key is prayer, the door is Jesus Christ. How good God is to give us a way into his heart.